gentlemen, we are so excited today to have Bob Orvis here on the Comedy Sports Podcast. Bob, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. I'm excited as well. This is such an honor to have you here. Bob Orvis, <laughs> yeah. one of the originals. Bob, tell me, where were you from? Where were you born and raised? Uh, born and raised in Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Two? Coolest spot in Wisconsin. Cool. That's okay. Not the coolest as being cool, but it's average temperature is 72 in the summer. <laughs> So, Summer lasts about a week and a half. Uh, yeah. If it hits 80 in two rivers, it's unusual. It's bizarre. And at 10 o'clock at night, it's uh, long sleeve. <laughs> what kind of kid were you? Were you the jokester? I, I kind of. I was a jock. You know, okay. I, I, if there was a ball, we played with it. You know, we grew up in the east side. We weren't. There's well, an east side of two rivers? Oh, yeah. Every town. East side. Okay. You know, the, the west side with the rich kids. Now I go back there and it's like, you know. Nobody was rich in Two Rivers, <laughs> okay. but but we were we were like the uh, the athletes lived near the lake and you know we played ball all the time. What More, was your sport of choice? Well, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. Really? But, yeah, but I wasn't good enough. Okay. Then I got into high school and I ran track. Okay. And then I thought I'd go to the Olympics and wasn't good enough. And then I thought I could be a professional field goal kicker and I wasn't good enough. And so, but you love sports. Oh yeah, yeah, any sport. Did you go to college? Yeah, I went to UWM. So that's what brought you to, to Milwaukee, was going yeah. to college. Uh, I moved I moved on Sunday of my senior year in high school. On Sunday, and then Monday was the next first day of school. Oh, my. So it was, it was hell, because I grew up in Two Rivers, never wanted to move. Yeah. And then my parents were moving to Port Washington, so I go to this town. I don't know anybody. Right. And, and then uh, at lunchtime, I try to leave the building to go home to eat, which I did all the time. They said, right. you can't leave the building. And I'm like, What? <laughs> and then I got sent home because I had moccasins once, and you can't wear moccasins. And... Wait, 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 wait. You got sent home from college? From, no, were... This is high school. Oh. My senior year in high school. So I moved to Port Washington my senior year, and then, okay. uh, and, then, and then I went to UWM from there. Okay. So I commuted my first year because my parents didn't have friends either. Okay. And then uh, I moved to Milwaukee my uh, sophomore year in college. Okay. What did you study in Milwaukee? Well, I started off uh, an accounting uh, business major. Really? Uh, and then I was taking 18 credits a semester. Okay. And this is during Vietnam. Okay. And after three years, I went, holy crap, I'm going to graduate and go to Nam. So then I, I kind of switched to a triple major, uh, mostly psychology. Okay. And so I had a choice between psychology, marketing, business administration, whatever degree I wanted. So I don't know which one I got, thinking business... Yeah. What year are we talking here? When did you graduate? I graduated in 68. 68. And then after you graduated, what did you do? What was Bob Orvis doing? Uh, well, I um, got a job at a radio station, a oh. top 40 radio station, okay. WZUU, okay. Larry the Legend, David Haynes. <laughs> and I wrote commercials. Here in Milwaukee? In Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. So it was high stress. Yeah. I had to write five or six commercials a day. And then get the disc jockeys to do them. And okay. so, you know, now you're playing the music over the air at the place. And if your commercial sucks, everybody hears it. <laughs> okay. you know, and, uh, you know, I made my traditional mistakes. First mistake was I, for a pizza commercial, I put the number of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. Instead of the pizza place? <laughs> yeah, so they were getting calls trying to figure it out. And I was like, ah, it's, 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 it's my... Uh, Sense of humor. So I did that for a, a couple of years, uh, and then I quit because it was just insane. Mm -hmm. uh, top forties, radio itself is crazy. Yeah. you know people get fired all the time. Right, uh, disc jockeys are fired all the time. So then I stopped doing that, and about a year later, I went back into radio for WFMR, which was classical during the day and jazz at night. Okay, uh, and that was cool. I did that for I don't know eight years, something like that. And, you know, Jake was born during that time. And, uh, so we're talking 80 now? No, he was born in 78. 78, okay. So in about 80, 81, I became a single parent. And uh, so it was just me and Jake. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then I got what uh, radio 
does to you, I got fired. Okay. Uh, you know, we were, we were a classical radio station, and we were the top-rated radio, classical radio station in the country, which was cool. In the country? In the country. Oh. Uh, we did a lot of different things. I had a, I had a classical um, comedy show that we went to high schools. And we went to Lincoln High School and City High Schools. And we got a grant from Peg Bradley. And so it was this funny show, but using classical music. And we had oh. the 1812 Overture on our synthesizer just blasting. And people were like, what is this? And so for the first time ever, we actually had listeners, teen listeners, listening to classical. Uh, so then they were going to change. Somebody bought the station to change it into, which is W, well, 96.5, whatever that is. Oh, like classic rock, 96.5? Yeah. Okay. And so it's worth a lot of money as a classic rock station, yeah. but not much money as a um, classical station. Classical station, So yeah. they they fired me because I was the promotions guy okay. at that time, and which was okay. Uh, and then a friend of mine talked me into being in a play because okay. I could never talk in front of people. I could write. You them. could never talk in front of people? No. If I had once in a while, we'd do these conventions, and I'd have to stand up and say, "Hi, Bob Arvis, WFMR," and it's really down and oh yeah, it's terrible. So John talked me into being in a play, okay, one play, uh, and then I met John Bank. All right. And John Bank, I had hired to do some promotions for me when at, at WFMR. Like we had a golf course where we sponsored a hole, and so it was a three par three hole. And I had all these mannequins in the hole, so people thought they were watching. People were yelling, four, four, and we had mannequins in the bushes, in the, <laughs> in, in the woods and stuff. Then we also had John, who would stand perfectly still with a plastic mask over his face, uh, transparent. And so just as mostly women, because women are more fun, uh, would walk into the green, John would just grab them high, and they'd and scream. They'd scream. And, was, <laughs> and then he did uh, some Shakespearean stuff for me and did some clown diving okay and then uh then i wrote a version of cinderella mm -hmm. uh, with a friend of his and you'd like this because cinderella it was very i was a hippie <laughs> and so cinderella at the end when the prince asked to marry she goes no you know <laughs> unless i get to run the kingdom he's like fine you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a spoiled rich kid what what do i want to work for <laughs> and so you know sean mckenna was okay. you know a little kid in it so then so i knew john and he told me about a friend of his, Dick Chudnow, coming into town to do this improv thing. Okay. And I was a writer. I'm like, I don't know. What's improv? Uh, yeah, did you have any idea of what he was talking about? No, no. All I knew is that we, I came back from a rehearsal of Cinderella. Okay. And I'm standing there watching what they're doing, going, okay, this looks cool. And John grabbed me from behind yeah. and ran me up on the stage, threw me on the stage, at which point I immediately fell down, turned around, and everybody cheered. And I'm like, huh. okay. And then, it's Wait, just... Where is this? This wasn't Mommy, cults. No, this was at uh, probably the Jewish Community Center. That's okay. where we first started our, our practices. Okay. And uh, then we just started making stuff up. And I yeah. was like, well, this is what I've been doing my whole life. You grow up in a small town, and that's what you do. Yeah. We didn't have a movie theater. We didn't have any of that crap. <laughs> so we just... That's what we did. Yeah. And so I said, so I just get to say anything I want to say? And they're like, yeah. And I was like... Well, this is easy. Writing, <laughs> writing is hard. Improv is incredibly easy. So that then I was hooked. Yeah. So tell me about those first that first year of comedy sports. So it's you, Dick Chudnow, John Bank, John Bank, Karen Kohlberg, Rosie Friedman, uh, Rosie, um, Jan Eater, uh, Nancy, mm -hmm. uh, John Light, uh, Marvin Berkowitz, Judy Berkowitz. Mm -hmm. God, I don't know if I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, it was real fun because yeah. um, we, by the first six months, we were practicing and at the JCC. You know, sometimes people come to my house. We go to the island near my house. We'd roll out to it and we practice scenes, and it was just like fun doing. So you're this. just playing improv games. You're just doing playing scenes. improv games. John Bank um, was taught by Paul Sills, mm -hmm. so I mean, we had a really good instructor, and yeah. Nancy was with the Groundlings. Okay. So we had people who could do improv, and then there's Dick, obviously. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Dick was the the man behind the scenes and, yeah. and the businessman, and and he was our leader, and John was our instructor. Okay. Uh, and John was very gentle. Um, John's way of instructing is, you know, is very gentle. Yeah. You know, you'd have to discover it. His whole thing was show, not tell. Uh-huh. And so, like, if we had guessing games, he'd very 
briefly ask us at the end of the guessing game is to go, when, the, when did you figure out what it was? And if we said, well, when he said, he, John would say, okay, mm. next. And we go, oh, we told instead oh, okay. of showed. And so we had a lot of really neat games. And we, we learned improv first yeah. because comedy sports is comprov. Right. You got to do improv before you do. So you guys were a tight group. Very tight. Were you, at this point when you're starting, were you coming up with some of the games? A lot of the games. Well, we were doing theater sports. Right. So, I mean, we were doing a lot of theater sports games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if we started inventing our own games, a little bit more of our own way of doing them. Theater sports is a little bit more. They're more long form, right? They're more. Well, and, and actually, the, we didn't really change the format much at all when okay. we went to comedy sports. We just made it more audience friendly. Okay. Um, theater sports had um, judges that would judge you on the scene, mm-hmm. and, and they were. It, their take from what I got from them was this was a way to learn to be a better improviser. And um, it was more for developing your improv skill right. rather than just being entertaining for the audience. Right, so, which is great about comedy sports is always keeping the audience in mind. Right. So you saw that was a little different. Yeah, we wanted to do more with the audience. The audience judges instead of uh, other players and stuff. Yeah. Otherwise, the audience, the format was the same thing. It was, you know, improv is improv. So yeah. when, when did you guys get cults then? When did you start at cults? Well, after about six months, we went to UWM mm-hmm. at the Eighth Note Coffee House. And we did four right. shows there. Okay. Uh, at that time, Jake was with me. And Jake was a little kid. He was little, yeah. And in the first four shows, Jake played. And he, he played? He How, played what well. was he, like five? Uh, <laughs> six or seven, yeah. yeah. But he did great. Yeah. But the stage was below everybody. One who went to cults, he couldn't play anymore. You couldn't see him. Oh, okay. Uh, which is really... Hard on Jake. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, he rolls with the punch as well. <laughs> but uh, we did four shows at the eighth note, mm-hmm. and then we went to cults. Okay. And then we started doing free shows, and then it's $2 a piece. And, yeah. And then, you know, bumped up to four bucks, and, you know, then. Was it blah, just blah, word blah. of mouth? How did it get out there? Did you guys do some advertising? Like, how? I mean, Comedy Sports is, is such a staple of Milwaukee. How did it get out there? How did it uh, It spread? started off word of mouth, yeah. and then we would do some things on, uh, on radio stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we had this thing called, um, it was an Ask Your Neighbor. Gordon Hinckley had that big thing, okay. Ask Your Neighbor. Okay. And so we did, you know, Ask the Guys Next Door. And yeah. so we'd come in, people would ask us how to repair things, and we'd come up with just horrible, horrible things. <laughs> and people thought we were funny. Right. And so we do interviews and stuff. And yeah. you know, anytime we could, do, we did a, cr- a parade once, which we c- could never do now, um, different times. Yeah. But... We're like, what do you want us to do? Well, just walk the parade with us. We're yeah. like, okay. And the guy that was with us says, I got a car that backfires. I'm like, really? <laughs> and so he, boom, 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 backfire. So I'd be walking behind him and, and he would backfire and I'd pretend I was shot. And I would stagger for a block. For blocks. Falling into kids and doing this stuff. And, and everybody thought it was funny. Now, right. Nowadays, it wouldn't be funny. Right. Uh, you know, for for. Multiple I mean, reasons. <laughs> obviously good reasons. I mean, those days, we used to have a starter's pistol. Okay, where yeah. we would, you know, at halftime, uh, Brian was our first major ref, Brian and Judy. But Brian, Brian Green. Brian Green was the ref. Now, he came in and auditioned. He's yeah. the only one that auditioned, right? Yeah, he's the only one that auditioned. Uh, and he was hilarious. And Brian and I had a great relationship because he was not into theater and neither was I. And so... So how we, does he just show up at an audition? Um... I have no idea. You know, Dick <laughs> said, we're, you know, we're running auditions and this one guy shows up and he's funny yeah. and, and nice and, and, uh, and so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, he was in the club. He was in. He, oh, yeah. He's always in. Yeah. And, uh, and we had a thing, when in doubt, pimp. Because yeah. we're both, you know, locker room humor. Yeah. And so if we'd be doing a scene, if, if for whatever reason we were getting lost, we'd just look at each other and it, it, something happened with his mama. And then, oh, yeah. and then he'd go after me. And I then, love Brian Green's mama. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when in doubt, a lot of times in the story, we'd be the last two up at story. Yeah. And then we'd look at each other and I'd say, yeah, well, like his mama told me last night. And boom, it just, the whole story at that point was me and him just and rip, ripping each other. Uh, <laughs> and that was great. But he was the ref a long time. At one point I, I told Brian, which he probably doesn't want me to say it. But I said, Brian, if you don't stop refing, you're never going to play. Ah, so is that why he doesn't ref anymore? That's why he doesn't ref anymore. Yeah. But anyhow, we had a starter's pistol. Yeah. And so at the end of the halftime, he'd go, and that's half. 
bam, shoot the gun. So one time, Brian never knew what the score was. I mean, Brian is Brian. Right. You, know, you can imagine Brian as a ref. No, you know, no, nobody, I'm like, what he refed? Which was which was great. So at the end, he goes, uh, and the first half, and the score is, uh, uh, and he did what he always did. He made up the score. And, and the guy, he goes, uh, ten to eight sparklers. And the guy goes, well, you're no mathematician. And Brian goes, no, I'm a marksman. And points the gun right Shots at the guy up. and shoots the guy. <gasps> That's half the time. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like, yeah, we couldn't do that now. No, no. But no. at that time, everybody laughed. And right. It was funny. So, at the start, are you doing shows every Friday and Saturday night, or is this like once a month? What do you think? Do you remember? We were doing, I, I think, once a week. Once a week. We, but the shows were two hours. Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes longer. And yeah. a lot of times, at the end of the show, we'd say, "If you want to stick around, we're going to do more." Mm-hmm. And then we'd play longer form games and and. Uh, uh, the audience would stick around, those who wanted to, and, you know, we just didn't ever want to quit. Right. And then sometimes when Brady Sheet was with us, um, we'd go to the cafe, uh-huh. a, a few of us, and do, you know, improv at a nightclub. And so night- Brady Street, Joe Cortese, uh, John Pelesnik. Angelo Farina. Angelo Farina, Bruce, Bruce Breaker. And, and Donnie Scheid. Okay. Uh, and, you know, they were wonderful. And so we'd go up with them and... And do some improv, and then you could swear, yeah, uh, which was really different. Wow, <laughs> has comedy sports always been friendly, family friendly? Oh, absolutely. Was that always a major importance to you guys? Really important that you keep it family friendly. Uh, probably the most important thing. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Uh, two reasons. One, so that everybody can see it. Yeah. Uh, I've never believed that because I'm older than somebody, I'm better than them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm no better than a ten-year-old kid yeah. uh, or a fifteen-year-old kid, uh-huh. and so. Why shouldn't they be able to come to see a show? That's great. And, and the other thing is that's a performer. Yeah. Um, it's so easy. When I would teach workshops, I'd say, okay, if you and I are doing angry mm-hmm. and you're allowed to swear mm-hmm. and all I can say is, golly gee, I'm upset. For me to show the same anger saying, golly gee, I'm upset mm-hmm. requires a better performance. Right. And so we never wanted to go the cheap way. Yeah. And so swearing is cheap. Now, not that we were prudes. No, off, I know, but no, it was a... But it, it, it makes you a better performer. It makes yeah. you fine. Uh, I hear people say, how, how can you do comedy without swearing? Yeah. And it's like, it's actually very easy. Right. Um, I think sometimes, like, um, Dead Alewives or Midnight Show and those guys, they, they went into, you know, saying whatever you want. Right. The trouble sometimes they had early on was swearing just... Just Just because they could. Yeah. And that would... It got them in trouble with the audience because yeah. then the audience would start giving them foul suggestions, oh. thinking that that's the way it has to be. Right. And, and you know improv. If you, if you get a joke for a suggestion, it's a tough scene. Mm-hmm. And so you want the audience to give you real suggestions and for you to start off your scenes in reality. Yeah. You, know, you, you start with a base. Mm-hmm. The scene should start with a base, like like picture a house so you have the foundation and then you can go from there anywhere but if you start a scene with all the sconces and all the fancy stuff and and funny and all that stuff now you got no place to go because there's no thing so we wanted to you know so when did you start teaching then when did comedy sports become um not just a performance but now there are workshops and you know people are coming to comedy sports to learn improv when did that start happening Fairly early, yeah. uh, we wanted to get more players, and okay. um, you know, and Dick would know a lot more about this than me. Uh, but we started saying, "You can join us." I mean, we had commercials Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> we had one with uh, Jan Eater. Do you know Jan Eater? Yeah, For the yeah, audience, yeah. if you know, he's a small little yeah. Jewish guy, and he had Brian Green, who's a tall African American. And so we would do the scene, and Jan would be, you know, we're at a party, and Jan's, you know awkward and, and nobody likes Jan and it's says and now after six weeks of improv let's do that same scene and then instead of Jan being in the scene it was Brian, it's Brian. as Jan Mr. Cool I was like see that's what happens that's what to happens. you <laughs> you too can become a cool black guy yeah. <laughs> and so people are like well oh god if I can be a cool black guy you well, know, why wouldn't I join <laughs> I'm a woman but if, I still want to be a cool black guy that's uh, my goal in life yeah so then we started bringing people in, and yeah. we had people um, challenge us to, what are you doing? Okay. Uh, and so there's a group called Fred's Lounge that challenged us to, what are you doing? And it was interesting because when 
theater people wanted challenges. They were they wanted to beat us. Yeah. And most of us didn't care from right. because I'm from sports. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people not from sports didn't get it. Mm-hmm. They thought we should be competitive. That that's what the audience wants, and I've always disagreed with that. Yeah, the competition about, is like a joke. It's a joke, and the thing about sports I didn't like was the competition. Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to win. Sure, but it's, it's a camaraderie in the game. Yeah, and in improv, if we tried to beat the other team, you know, you can beat a team in a competitive game. Yeah, doesn't make the game funny anymore. Right, it's it, not funny. It's not funny, but you win. Right, and so. They wanted to beat us, which we thought, thought was hilarious. Just ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't even play those matches. It was just like, nah, I really don't want to do yeah. that. Because sometimes I'm an old athlete, and uh, you get better when you're angry if you yeah. play sports sometimes. Uh-huh. And so if somebody started getting cocky or they started to cheat, there's ways of cheating the game. You go, okay, well, no, I'm going to kick your ass. And then, and, and then, that's what happened. Yeah. It happened once in a tournament with Bo Johnson. If you know Bo, yeah. just the sweetest guy in the world. Sure. And a theater guy, not competitive, not a competitive not, bone in his No. And so we're going against another city who we found out, they said, okay, well, we'll beat Milwaukee in all the competitive games, and then they can beat us in the scene games and we'll win. And we're like, oh. Like they're trying to fix it so they end up winning with points. Right, right. And so they're <laughs> playing, cares? what are you doing? And, and they got really cocky. And... and uh, Bo's up first, and they said something, and, and Brian and I just were like, oh, really? Yeah. And I said, Bo, take him out. <laughs> so he took out the first guy, looked at us, Bo, take him out. <laughs> yes, sir. And then after the second guy, he turned, and Brian and I turned away from him. We wouldn't look at him. Mm. And it was like, okay, he took out all four guys. And then uh, they were done, and I looked at the other team, I said, is this what you want? <laughs> and then we both, then we felt terrible that we did that. We stooped to it. Um, well, but it's, you know... I remember teaching improv at sports back in the, know, the 90s. I was teaching one of the, you know, uh, 101 or 102, whatever the heck we called it back then. And um, teaching, you know, a guessing game, sideline debate. And everyone thought the goal was to get the words, which you teach it that way. You know, how can we break down these words? How right. can you get the guesser to get it? But when you're doing it in front of a crowd, we can get supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in one syllable. Yeah. But that's not fun for the crowd. And that's hard for some people to understand. We're doing it to entertain, not to win. And I remember teaching some people in workshops just couldn't grasp that. Like you're saying, you got another comedy group up there trying to win, win, win. And that's not fun for the crowd. I mean, the the fake competition, they get into it, but they want to be entertained. Right. I told some, somebody was saying, well, the audience really is into the competition. Yeah. And I said, We've been doing this 30-some years. There's no sparkler fan in the world. Right. There's no dendrite fan. Right. It's not like you they know. come in with those jerseys on screaming, no. I'm no. a dendrite. You know, it's, they, they, they like the underdog. If yeah. one team starts off losing, that's the team they want to sure. win. Sure. Human you know, nature. Get that, and very often the wrong team wins, and we, we're fine with that. Right. The only time it bothered us, in all of us, is that at the end of the show, mm-hmm. if you were the team that wasn't as good, and somehow you lucked out winning, you know, and said, the winners are the dendrites. And we'd, we'd always look down at our shirts. Yeah, am I a dendrite always, I, yeah. I do the same, same thing. thing. I look at my shirt. Is that me? I don't remember. Yeah, and then if we won and we shouldn't have, we went, oh, yeah, audience didn't get what they wanted. Yeah. You know, and I feel terrible. <laughs> you know, I don't want to win. Because <laughs> who cares? Somebody once told me years ago, she, she says, you know, I'm, I'm 38 and 5 or something. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what that means. She goes, I'm 38 and 5. Again, I don't know. don't know. That's my record. Record in what? In comedy sports. Stop it. Oh, yeah. No. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? And uh, I was like, oh. oh. You're one of those people. <laughs> we, we have to nip this in yeah, the bud. Yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, to her... You know, goodness, she you didn't notice how competitive she was. She, so she wasn't ruining the, the show by being competitive. Okay. It's just, just the wrong focus. Though. Yeah, I was like, not, okay. Not, not, not right there. Okay, yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. So, so from we're talking 80s, you're at cults. When does this whole remote thing come into play? When I started in, when I came back from Madison and Milwaukee, 
Dick is the in-house guy. Bob is the remote guy. Yeah. Like, I I think I saw you perform on stage in-house maybe once, twice. I mean, you were the remote guy. When did that happen? When did remote start taking off? How did you start getting business and go take a, you know, a group of people from comedy sports and perform other places? A couple years into it, you know. Um, You're still at Cults? Yeah, we're still at Cults. Okay. Oh, yeah, because we were upstairs and we'd carry all that equipment back in those days um, <laughs> back when I was young back when I well when props were still cool which uh, don't don't even don't, talk don't about even props. yeah i i am <laughs> we've lost our way years ago because it was like well we don't wear props we're it's too good catch. and like you know ask an audience member do they like props and they do yeah. but you know sometimes we Improvisers sometimes play for other improvisers. Mm -hmm. And I would tell these guys, well, if you're doing a show for elitist improvisers, for heaven's sakes, don't wear props. For the love of God, don't put a wig on. Yes, and you wear a wig, oh my God. You know, know, which unfortunately, when a man puts on a, does not put on a wig and plays a woman, people assume that they're gay, you know, which is fine. But then they, then they let it, no, no, I'm your wife. I'm your, you know, so we tell the audience instead of showing the audience. Sure. Which is breaking that rule. So we're awake. Look, you know, if we look stupid, you know, laugh at us, laugh with us. And the original group understood that really well. Right. That if their audience is laughing at us, they're still laughing. Yeah. And so if your ego gets in the way, um, don't do improv. I can't imagine that the, the beginning group of comedy sports or is that there were many egos. Weren't you all just like a group of buddies and hanging out all the time? Yeah, we didn't have any egos. No. I mean, when we first started doing acapella jams, is me, Jan, and Rosie, and, you know, I mean, we're not musical geniuses, and we'd say, give us, you know, a word, give us a style, and yeah. we'd acapella a jam. Yeah. Well... We'd either get a standing ovation or boo. You know, I mean, it were, it, I mean, it was not. Yeah. You know, we failed a lot, and uh, the audience dug it. It's like, you know, thank you for putting it out there. That, yeah, that thanks you, for trying, giving it a shot, committing. Right. And you and you failed. Yeah, and and, and we booed you. Yeah. You know, and, but we I, love you anyway. I told somebody once I got booed off stage at Summerfest <laughs> eh, more than once, uh, <laughs> and I was with somebody that shared the boot and, and this person was very shook up and I was like, you know, booing is a sense of love. It's, yeah. it's, it's a show of love from the audience. They're booing us because they think we can take it. If they really don't like us, they're going to be quiet. So, <laughs> you know, if they're going to boo you off stage, yeah. I did an object freeze once with this kid about 10 years old oh, at Summerfest. And so, you know, it's like, you know, you move him into whatever position, yeah. you know, and so... I just whispered in his ear. I say, say, ow. He said, what? I said, pretend I'm hurting you. Yeah. And so I moved him and he goes, ow. I'm like, shut up. And he moved him and he's, ow. I said, come on. You know. And so he immediately realized what the bit was. Yeah. And the audience is booing me. And you know, he said, I'm sorry. He's like, no, no, keep it up. And, <laughs> and I'm like, yo, yo, what's the matter with you? Just come on. And, ow, ow, ow. And so it was great. They're booing me. And every time I turned around, for object freeze, they'd boo me again. Yeah. And I was standing next to Kurt and he goes, How can you take it? I said, I have to keep going out there now. I'm right. You know, it was the bit. It was a bit that I regretted greatly <laughs> to a point. Then when the show was all over, every you know, we're walking off the stage and I came back to the microphone and I said, No, 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 not just me. It's here for everybody else. And they just started booing me the whole room. And I go into the tent or, you know, Backstage, and they're like, what's going on? I said, oh, I went back to the microphones. <laughs> it was just me. <laughs> it was just me. And then the, the kid came up to us, you know, he's back in the audience. He yeah. came up, and I went over to him, and people were like, oh, oh you guys know each other? I said, well, you know each other now. Now I gave, we do. I gave him free passes. I was like, you are awesome. Yeah. Take a workshop. You know, you'll be great. Yeah. And the audience was like, you're a jerk. I'm like, yes. <laughs> So back to remotes. How did you start getting businesses to hire comedy sports? We started making announcements. During the shows? During the shows. Okay. That we're doing that. I don't know if we ever did advertising. Very minor. The thing about the remote business is that it's the show. Yeah. If you give them what they want, they're going to book you again. Yeah. And they're going to tell their friends. And the key to remotes was inside information. You get information from the audience, mm-hmm. uh, from the group. So I would... 
back in those days, I'd go and meet with committees. And, you know, what do you do? You know, give me a name of somebody, <coughs> excuse me, somebody that you like mm-hmm. that we can pick on. Mm. Um, but the rule is always, you know, we will never do, if somebody's overweight, we'll never do that type of joke. Never right. do a ball We're not joke. Bully people. You never, yeah, you yeah. never hit a, it's same thing with our players. You, yeah. you, somebody once made a ball joke, one of our guys was on stage bald, and I gave him one of my rare notes after the show. I was like, you did never do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we know where what line we don't ever cross. Right. And so we would do that, and uh, and people started really liking the remotes, and you do a remote for, you know, 200 50 people, people come up after, you know, um, my husband's in this group, you know, what you do for my company? Right. And so word of mouth. Right. I mean, it got to a point where one year I booked 629 remotes. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, how did you become that guy? Did you choose to be the, I'm going to do the business of remotes, I'm going to do that and not perform in-house anymore? How did that happen? That's Well, I was still performing all the in-house shows for the first 10 years. Okay. So I was just, I, the, the years I did over 400 shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dick asked me if I wanted to do that. And I said, yeah, because I'm from business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's what I did. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I can do that. And uh, and that was fine because, you know, Dick and I had a great relationship. He, you know, he did the in-house. I yeah. did the remotes. And we supported each other. And uh, Well, and by focusing just on that, that's how you became – Milwaukee was the city that was doing 600 shows a year in right. remotes, right? I mean, because that was your focus then. Well, back then – and. We could go to Madison. Well, Madison was early, but we could go. We did a lot of shows in Chicago. Yeah. You know, when the league came, that stopped us yeah. from doing that many remotes because we just simply couldn't go where we used to go. Um, so, you know, that was that. Starting this whole comedy sports thing in Milwaukee and being one of the originals and starting with this group of people that I'm sure are your tight, close friends at that point, and then it starts to become a business and you have a place and a stage and now you're booking shows outside of the in-house shows, when comedy sports started spreading to other cities, I think Madison was first. Madison was first. How did you, I mean, did you feel like a rock star? Like, how does this, you know, (laughs) suddenly, I mean, suddenly comedy sports is in Chicago, and now we've got comedy sports in Europe and, you know, in England and in Germany. Like, how do you feel, like, being one of the originators? Are you like, this is just so cool? Is it, was it weird? Was it catching on? Like, how does that make you guys feel? Wow. Um. I'm a single parent, or mm-hmm. I was a single parent. Right. So the great thing about being a single parent is I never could get too full of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so your focus was always your kids. Jake was at every workshop, yeah. every show. Yeah. And so if I had a great show, I wasn't like some people, I'm going to L.A. Mm-hmm. I had my kid. If I had a terrible show, I had my kid. He yeah. didn't care. He didn't care. And so, your dad, he loves you. Yeah, that's it. And so my number one thing is... You know, somebody asked me, have you done the most improv shows in the world? Mm-hmm. I, I said, I probably could be in the Guinness Book, you know. Mm-hmm. But the, my pride is I've changed more diapers mm-hmm. than any improviser in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's that's that's how I felt about it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's... You so know. the aspirations to go to L.A., which a lot of sportsers do, that wasn't ever in your... Oh, I would have loved to. Yeah. I mean, it would have been fun. Yeah. But I didn't think L.A. was a good place to raise Jake as a single parent. Right. And so there's a lot of things that you're a parent. Yeah. I mean, how many... You said you changed the most diapers. I don't know. My kids really like to poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's count them I, up. Yeah, well, I change them when they're not even ready to be changed. <laughs> That's I'm what I should... them right now. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember being at a party where somebody was like, oh, this kid smells. And I, and I took my hand, put it down his oh, yeah, pants. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yep, and they're yep, like, oh. <laughs> And I was like, oh, give me a diaper. I'll change him. You don't even know him. I'm like, who cares? I, change one, you change them all. Well, plus, I was a single parent. So I was really yeah. into the man thing. When yeah. guys would say, I don't change my my kid's diaper, yeah. I would yell at him. I was like, what the hell's wrong with you? That is so stupid. And it's like, yeah. I mean, it's like, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> We're no worse than women. So <laughs> we can do this. We can do this. So anyhow, my ego could never get too big. Yeah. And we were really, really into not having big egos. That's I mean, great. somebody asked me once if I would have roadies break down our show. And I said, absolutely not. I will never do it because it's very important for our players to leave a show where we kick 
butt. And there's pretty women wanting to talk to us. And I'm sorry, you have to break down the set. You got to break down the show. And, you know, and you have to humble yourself. Yeah. You know, and besides, those women aren't going to stay with us anyhow. You know, who's getting home? You know, people think you are who, who they see on stage. Especially because yes. it's improv. They go, oh. well, you're making it up. That's who you are. Right. And we just laugh. It's like, yeah, it's who we wish we were. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, Not always as entertaining. Oh, yeah. I mean, isn't it? Oh, I went on a date with a guy once I met. I think he was in workshops and he knew who I was. And it's like I'm two different people. I'm Christine, my personal life, who is, suffers from depression <laughs> and anxiety. And, you know, I'm crazy and I don't sleep because I'm worried about everything under the sun. And then I'm Christine on stage. And everyone's like, you're so funny and great. Oh, my God. I bet your house is so hilarious. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I went on this date with some guy. And I had to cancel the first time because I was sick. And then we postponed it. And then I thought, oh, I can't cancel again. I'm still not feeling great, but I'll go. And he was so let down that oh, I wasn't yeah. entertaining him the whole time. You could tell his body language was like, this is a date with you. Like I wasn't, you know, juggling and telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> we never went out again, you know, but whatever. <laughs> give me a, give me a situation. I know, like 185 what? I'm like, oh my God, I just want to go home. I'm so tired. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, that's all of us. It's, yeah. uh, you know, When I would teach workshops, some different types of workshops, uh, using improv as a way of, um, as a life skill, if you can remember the rules of improv in your regular life, it, it, you know, like even being at a party, somebody's saying, how could you use improv as a party? I'm saying, I'm going to tell you a different way than you think. Mm -hmm. You're going to think that you're going to be the star of the party. You're not. You're the best audience member in the party. That's how you use improv. You support other people. Somebody has a joke, you laugh at it. Somebody has a story, you listen to it. You may not be adding to any of this stuff, mm-hmm. but you're a great audience member. Yeah. And if you're a great improviser, you're a great audience member on stage. You know, you're into it as much as the audience is, and you're supporting your other people. So well, if you go to a party with the idea of supporting everybody mm-hmm. else, they're going to like you. Yeah. And so, you know, but you're not who you who you come across on stage, you know, right. confident and, you know. Right. I mean, look at someone like Robin Williams. Everyone thought he was as funny as any, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe all of us comedians deal with major mental illness. But I mean, it's. Well, yeah. I mean, we're comedians. We're entertainers. My, right. my wife, uh, Lisa, was trying to hook up some of her friends with my friends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, you don't, you don't want to date you us. Those people. We're, you know, <laughs> we can, you can go for a, a year without people applauding you. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're sad, needy people. We are. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful people. Oh, wonderful. But, you know, we're a little bit more needy yeah. than other people. And, and money is not our driving factor, obviously, obviously if you're yeah. doing improv. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of reasons to run from us. <laughs> Don't take that guy. What are you, crazy? Yeah. No, I, I, I love improvisers. Yeah. And, and, you know, these are all my friends. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it, you know, the thing is, if we'd meet somebody, we'd say, okay, when did you meet her? Were you on stage or off? Off stage, yeah. On stage. And we go, oh, okay. Uh, well, that's not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. That's it, yeah. Oh, I met terrible. Lisa off stage. There you go. And that's why you're still together. Yeah. And so, she doesn't care. She didn't come to shows. Yeah. You know, had very little interest in that. Right. Well, now, I, how has improv changed your life you you started this talking about you were the guy that couldn't even get in front of a crowd of people to talk and like how how do you feel it's changed your life i'm this hoping is, for the better well yeah this is <laughs> this is what i should do when i look at you know because like going to class reunion everyone says oh we always knew you'd be a comedian you know you're always the funniest guy okay and, but in school i wasn't uh you know i could never i could never give a speech or anything like that mm-hmm. i could just you know even if I have to give a speech, if I, the only way I could make it work is if somebody asked me a question, I had to answer it, yeah. and, which is improv. Right. And um, so it's kind of this is what I should have been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in advertising, and that's, you know, I'd be yeah. dead now if I'd have stayed in that. You know, is that what you think you would have been doing if, if it's Oh, that's whole... what I was doing. Yeah. I, you know, I was no longer in radio, but I was working at a marketing firm. I worked at... Uh, Boston store for a couple of years as a copywriter, mm-hmm. but I was a single parent. So right. um, I had a, for Boston store, I said, okay, I will work for you. I have a lot of experiences writing radio, yeah. not much print. Uh, and it's like, well, you're 
overqualified and like, okay, I will work for you for two years. I mm -hmm. promise you I will not quit for two years, but you have to promise me that at five o'clock I leave. I can go home. Which is not an advertising no, way not. of life. No. And so they did yet they said yeah and mm -hmm. that was the greatest thing. And that's when we were doing starting comedy sports. So, you know, it was it was an insane time. Mm -hmm. You know, wake up in the morning, get Jake off to school and, yeah. and work and then come home and then do comedy sports. And, right. You know, right. rinse and repeat. Was, <laughs> <laughs> so how do you see, how has comedy sports changed since when you guys started, the originals, to now? How do you see what's happened, what's changed? What have you noticed? Without being negative, it's a business. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we always wanted to be a business, but we were... You know, we were dreamers, mm -hmm. and um, and I never, I never ran remotes like a business. You know, I, I have a business degree, and mm -hmm. you know, when I worked for WFMR, uh, Cost John Cost was my boss, inventor of the headphones, and uh, he's like Bob. Uh, you know, he, my way of management was so different, mm -hmm. but I was like, and my dad was a manager, and he's like, it did it all wrong because I said. He said, "You can't be friends with your employees, and this is how you have to do it. This, you know, there's a hierarchy, mm -hmm. and and I refuse to have a hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you saw me in remotes. People, people don't treat me like I'm the boss. Right. You, you right. know, the first time uh, Lisa went on a ro remote with me, I'm with Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub and Kurt and those guys <laughs> and Peter Alberts, and all they did was just rip me the entire time in the van. <laughs> you know, I would say something, they'd ignore me. They were just letting letting Lisa know that, nah." Yeah. <laughs> he, he ain't the boss of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it, it, so we were very loose that way. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think it's different then now? I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing that. But I know there was more, you know, em emphasis in the league of, you know, being more corporate. Mm -hmm. and, and I came from corporate. I re rejected corporate. Yeah. So, you know, eventually you have to be, um, no, actually you don't. But, um, you know, it becomes a business, and it's like any other business, you have to do business thing. Yeah. I like the mom and pop. I think Dick liked the mom and pop. Right. And uh, and I I think you can do mom and pop forever until mom and pop are gone. Yeah. And then you know, and mom and pop might be gone now. You know, obviously I'm gone. Well, do you miss uh, it? I mean, you've retired. I, I I had to retire. I had strokes. Yeah. So you know, I I feel like that athlete that had to retire before he wanted to. Yeah. I can't go to comedy sports. It kills me to yeah. see the show. It just, you know, I get, I get sick again. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I would love to be up on stage. I, I don't know how many shows I did, 70,000. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember shows I didn't like. I loved shows. Yeah. You know, you, you're with your friends. Oh, yeah. You're goofing off. And great. you're with fun people. Like in the fan rides, somebody asked me once, you know, what do you do? Do you play music? I said, no, we we never played music in the van. Mm -hmm. People come in, I got a CD, fine, not in the van. Mm -hmm. And because it's it's fun, fascinating people, you know, you're not always being funny, but you're very often being fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, different discussions. And, and you know, comedians and improvisers were, were deep thinkers, not necessarily brilliant thinkers, but deep thinkers. Yeah. And so, you know, the subjects that you come up with in the van and you, you know, it's so fun. And then characters, mm -hmm. you know, people come up with a character. Mort Snotlocker, Angelo's character came up in the van. Really? And um, a Dutch, his yeah. Dutch came up in the van as Harry Gill, which yeah. is something you could never put on uh, in front of a real audience. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, if somebody was coming up with a character, they'd say, I'm this person. And then the whole ride in the van or rides in the van from that point, people would be asking you questions and you're responding in character. So mm -hmm. you were now that character. And so you became, you learned about that character. We learned about you and we had fun. And, yeah. and uh, it was, it's just, you know, van rides were just so much fun. That's the bonding. That's, that's, that's so the important thing. to feel comfortable with the people you're performing with. Right. Everybody's usually have down there such great relationships. Yeah. Oh, you know? yeah. We there's there's love there, yeah. which is why when I would get new people doing remotes, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people like when you came in and wasn't doing many in-house shows anymore, you know, people know who I was, yeah. but they didn't, you know, and by the fact that I'm, you know, we have this title, they assume right. one thing, and then they meet me and they go, "He's just 
just a dickhead. But, I mean, you know, I was afraid of that guy. But I would take I people aside. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say, okay, first of all, the remotes are a faster show. Mm-hmm. Somebody said it's the difference between regular season and playoffs. Yeah. And I said, that's very close. Uh-huh. Because when you put your foot on stage on a remote, do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can come into an in-house show and work your way into it because the audience is there. They paid the money to see you. Right. On a remote, nobody paid money to see you. you know, Sometimes every, they don't even know you're coming. Right. You're, suddenly or they it's don't like, even, hey, by the way, we have comedy sports and half the people are drunk or off in the back talking. And, right. So every scene's got to work. And yeah. Every, every scene's got to go fast. And so it's a faster thing. But then I would tell them, you will not get a note from me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'm not afraid of notes. I'm like, okay, fine. You're not getting them. Uh, because I don't know you. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that you're going to try to impress me, which is, means you, your improv isn't going to be the greatest. Yeah. And after three or four remotes, uh, I'll have an idea of where you're at, and then I may give you a note. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not going to give you a note now because I don't want you to ever worry about coming off stage to a note. Right. Um, my way of thinking is that if you're thinking about what you're doing wrong, you're going to do wrong. So you only think about what you're doing right. And right. and if at the end of the show you remember all the things you did right, that's probably better than remembering the things you did wrong. The because, one thing you might have done wrong. Because I guarantee you, Christine, any note I was going to give you, you already gave to yourself. Yeah. And so all I'm doing is reinforcing the negativity. Yeah. And that does nobody any good. If somebody is continually doing something wrong, mm-hmm. then you set them aside privately. Right. It, 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 people would come up to me and say, you got to give this guy notes. Yeah. you got to give this person notes. Yeah. And I'd laugh. I'd say, well, your thing is you want me to give them notes in front of you. Uh, <laughs> that note is for you. Yeah. Uh, I give people notes, but privately. Yeah. And so, and if you... You have a bad show and, and somebody gives you notes, then you have fighting where maybe a week or two later, we're sitting at the bar and I put my arm around somebody and say, hey, man, remember that show? You just buried us all. And it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's like, boom, you know, you gave the note mm-hmm. and, you know, they were upstaging people. That's the notes I would always give. Yeah. Choice notes are stupid. Right, um, they're not. Yeah. yeah. When people would say, well, what I would have done, then you go, well, then. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> Next time, go for it. I don't care. Yeah, go, go for it. Well, one, one thing I know people didn't always like to hear it. Sometimes I would say, you know, the, the notes that you gave is more important for the note giver mm-hmm. than the more note taker. Mm-hmm. The note giver very often is showing you the hierarchy. Yeah. Letting you know that they know more than you. Yeah, putting and you in your place. Putting you in your place. Yeah. And, sit and so you're talking about where comedy sports came. To me, I fought notes from day one. Yeah. Dick was not big on giving notes. They okay. could give notes in workshops. Yeah. Wonderful notes. Uh, John would give notes in workshops. Wonderful notes. Uh, we didn't get notes after shows mm-hmm. because we didn't want people to be inhibited. We didn't want people to start thinking that they're, you know, because yeah. we failed so many times mm-hmm. that you, you, you just can't dwell on your failures. Yeah. And, and sometimes you try something new and you fail. If you get a note on that, that note is terrible because then you're not the note is don't try something new and so now you have a safe show and a safe show is a boring show and if everybody has the same voice on stage that's also a boring show so if somebody's way of doing things is to break scene reality constantly because that's who they are Mm -hmm. they're not trying to upstage you they're not trying to do it to be a jerk that's who they are well then viva la difference (laughs) you know now if you're such a great improviser and somebody's denying you and asking questions and all that stuff. If you're so great, it doesn't bother you. Yeah, that would drive me crazy. People would say, "Well, you know, they were denying, they were doing this, and you know, well, you know, I do improv the right way." Actually, you don't, <laughs> <laughs> because you should be able to deal with that. Right, it's improv. It's improv. I love it, your take on notes. That's a great perspective. I think that's a really healthy way to approach them. Well, and there was a time once where I was hearing, you know, people would come to me and say, you know, the new people are really getting buried in notes. And once I asked a bunch of new people, I said, are you more afraid on stage or in the green room after the show? And they said, the green room. And I was like, I am so sorry. That should never happen. You should never have a fear of being in the green room. You know, now if somebody's constantly doing the same thing wrong, you know, um, well, then you try to figure out why they're doing that. We had once a discussion and I said, okay, so 
because I knew I people thought I was a wuss, and uh, which is fine. I am a wuss, but I said, "Oh, said so." Here's a a, a potential note, okay, and um, you're doing a scene. The scene's going great. Somebody walks into the scene and stops it dead. Mm-hmm. Just stops it dead. Is that a good time to give a note? And people say, "Well, yeah." Then that's obviously a, a good note. Right. Like that's obviously the worst note you can possibly give, yeah. because the next time we're on stage, that person should be coming into the scene. And they're not going to come. In. They're not coming in. <laughs> they're terrified. Or they're coming in weak. Yeah. And they can't come in weak. And you know, our job is that, especially newer people, because they know, you know, sometimes they're they're in a scene with somebody they've watched on stage for five years and mm-hmm. now they're on stage with that person. Sorry, to them it's a bigger deal than it is to us. And so they're deferring to us and they should never defer to us. Yeah. And so our job is to make sure that their game was right. So if, if, if there's a note to be made, it should be, I'm so sorry, I didn't support you when you came in. You know, the scene died, I should have picked it up at that point. Yeah. You know, so that's on me, not on you. And that's a great perspective. That's really, we could talk for hours about your rules and thoughts on improv. I mean, you are a wealth of knowledge. That's, that's an excellent perspective that not many people. Well, it's, it's, it's in good or bad and different. It's funny. I was, I gave a workshop uh, last year. I tried to get back into it and I, and I said, so what is improv to you people? And they were telling me, you know, define improv and they were telling me the rules. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, you know, they said, well, you can't deny. I said, well, sometimes denial works yeah. well. You can't ask questions. I'm like, oh, that's a terrible rule because <laughs> if you play with audience volunteers, you ask them questions all the time yeah. to get them to answer. And now they're in the scene. Yeah. Uh, but I said, improv is love. And they're laughing. I said, no, A, I'm an old hippie. But B, if you love your fellow players, the scene will be better. Mm-hmm. If you love the audience, the scenes will be better. If an audience volunteer comes on stage and you love that person mm-hmm. and you your whole goal is to make that person look good, you're doing good improv. You know, if, if I'm in the scene with you and my whole thing is to make you look good, well, I'm listening, I'm cooperating, yeah. you know, I'm following, mm-hmm. and, and I'm doing all the things a good improviser should do. And so it makes you a better improviser. Right. If you really care, if somebody's not happy, you should know who's not having a good show. And at some point during that show, you've got to bring them into a good scene. You have to somehow... you got to raise them up. You raise gotta, them yeah, up. Yeah, give them more confidence. Let them know they can do this. Right. And then, you know, and then it's great because then, you know, well, put it this way. For me, if the audience hates me and you come into a scene knowing that you, you know, it's one thing to come into a scene knowing you can save it. But if you come into a scene knowing that you can't save it, and at the end of the scene, the audience hates you more than me. You've done your job. So that, that's my goal. It's like I want people to come in and make the audience hate them more than me yeah. uh, or love them more than me. Right. Uh, you know who's great at that? I've always thought was a great supporting player on stage is Pauly Stasek. Oh, yeah. He always played the supporting role. You know, like I remember starting and there, there, there were some egos at comedy sports and, you know, you'd get suggestions for like day in the life and the, everybody fought to be the main person. <laughs> I'm going to be the main guy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because it's all about me, 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 you know, and Polly's like, yeah, yeah, I'll just be the neighbor. You know? <laughs> like yeah. He was always and he'd come in with a different character and an accent and he would guide the entire scene being the supporting character. That was sometimes forgettable. Sometimes the only reason the scene worked was because he was setting everybody up for success. Right. I mean that like that's everything you're saying, and I just think of Polly. Yeah, Polly was great. We had a lot of great support. The audience didn't always understand who the best player was. Yeah. You know, we'd laugh sometimes the audience because at the end they would cheer. Right. Uh, one thing when we had endings where we individualized the the person at the end, I was against that yeah. because I didn't want. More cheers for one person. Right, because they generally cheered for the scene stealer. Yes. You know, the audience doesn't know what makes a scene work. They know what they like. Right. But they don't know necessarily how somebody sacrificed to make this other person look good. And some people don't sacrifice for to make the other person look Mm -hmm. good. So at the end, the audience thinks they're the greatest person in the world. Like changing emotions. You and I are doing changing emotions. Somebody yells anger, I jump it. They yell sad, I jump it. Right. And so I jump every one. The audience thinks I'm funnier than you and faster than you, but an improviser knows 
I'm just being a jerk. Yeah, in my head, I'm like, come on, give me a second. Give me one. <laughs> yes, give me one. <laughs> let me jump in too. <laughs> yeah. And so, but at the end of the show, I'm jumping. The audience thinks I'm funnier. Yeah. And so yeah. it's that, a tricky thing. It is. It's tricky. So, Bob Orvis, what has your nickname been all these years at Comedy Sports? Orv. Orv. So when they say Bob or Orvi, Orvi Orvis in Two Rivers, I was Orvi until I hit high school, and then I became Orv, uh, and then I moved to Port Washington, and I became Bob, which was weird. I mean, your name is Christine. <laughs> Nobody called me that. It was always Rolo, and okay. now new people don't call me Rolo, and it freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, and that was. I mean, Port Washington. They say, well, "And what's your name?" I go, "It's um." You have to think about it. Yeah, and it's like, well, it's Bob. And well, really, do you have to think about it? I'm like, yeah, because nobody wants to call me Orv. Yeah, whenever I'm down at sports now and people say, hey, Christine, I don't even, I'm like, wait, oh, that's me. I was Rolo for so long. And I liked being Rolo. I know, and I like (laughs) it, and I miss it. You jerks, call me Rolo. (laughs) Because it's just what I got used to for 20 years. I'm Christine, I'm a mother. I know, I'm a mom. God's sakes. Oh, and I'm Dave's wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's even worse. That's even worse. Nobody wants to be Dave's wife. Nobody wants that. We don't even want to be Dave's friend. (laughs) We don't even want to admit we know Dave. Oh, he keeps getting scheduled. (laughs) Oh, I know. So, Bob, we're going to play a quick game here before we exit. This has been fantastic. I'm going to have you pick two cards here. Okay. Would you rather, and you're going to read them both, and tell me what you'd rather do. Okay. Drink a milkshake, make, drink a milkshake made from St. Bernard's slobber. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Or? Done that. <laughs> Sweat so much you always drench your clothes and leave a puddle where you were standing. Oh. You know, as a sweater, <laughs> as a person who, in comedy sports, I was the one who wanted a lot of the white shirts so it didn't show sweat. Yes. So uh, I, I do the St. Bernard thing. You drink a malt made of St. Bernard's spit. That has got to be some drink. I, uh, wow. Those are good. Well, uh, you know what? One just shows I'm a fool. <laughs> The and one you can just get it over with. You just drink the, the drink, shake and you're done. You're done. The sweating thing is forever. And St. Bernard's, I always have brandy with them, so... So maybe it'd be clean spit. It'd be clean, yeah. I, you know, I like animals more than I like... Well, I know, I actually do like people. But <laughs> I trust animals more than I trust people. All right, last game, Bob. I've got a bunch of papers in front of you. You're going to pick two. These are two different comedy sports games. Okay. I want you to read them both and tell me what you'd rather play in a show. Okay. Replay at Bernie's. Ah, Bernie's with the dead guy, right? Bernie's with the dead guy. Yeah. Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, you're dragging around a performer on stage who is just a dead lump. Or sideline debate. Uh, replay. I'm scene, 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 scene. You like the scenes better. I love scenes. Uh, if I could do a show, like three-person shows, yeah. we started very often with 185 because uh, I liked failing the beginning of the show. Okay. Let the audience know that. We're doing improv. Yeah. Uh, but I love scene work. It, the more the merrier. Remote scenes went longer. Mm-hmm. They, you know, very often 10-minute yeah. scenes, sometimes longer. Uh, and scenes, you're safe. They feel good when, they, when they're going well. It's uh, like you don't want them to end. You don't. And, no. you know, the other games are, are fine, but they're... Give me scenes. Yeah. And even, like, what are you doing? I was teaching what are you doing once as scene work. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, do it as scene work. Yeah. And uh, It's a bunch of little mini scenes. And, and know the person that you're playing with that if they're physical, like if I'm with Eric Price, mm-hmm. I'm going to make him do physical things. Because he can do it, yeah. Yeah, if I'm with Tom New, I'm going to throw in a Shakespeare. I'm gonna right, throw you're going to give him something. Something that he can do. Yeah. And so, and then let him do it. Yeah. You know, and, and if your point of focus in what you're doing is to get the other person out, you've kind of missed it point of the game so you are a true improviser at heart always trying to lift up all those around you have a good show well the audience yeah i think it's your friends yeah you know yeah well bob orvis this has been fantastic i want to have you back again sometime so we can talk longer about improv but i just really appreciate you coming in and i'm so sorry that you're still married to dave you know i'm trying to remedy that (laughs) so i'm really into eric thames right now with the brewers so we'll see if i can get him to come over because uh have you seen those muscles on that man? Plus, he seems like a sweetheart he of a guy. He seems like a nice guy. That'd be a good change. I think, you know, 
lot of the brewers are probably really nice people. Yeah. They're rich and famous and stuff like that. And, and drop dead gorgeous when you look at Eric Thames. I, you know, oh, I, I, you'd I take don't. him if he walked in here right now. Oh my God, anybody would. He'd have to get me drunk. He would. And I don't drink, so Eric is out of luck. Sorry, Eric. Oh. Christian Yelich, on the other hand. Oh, well, there you go. See, he's a cutie patootie. He's a cutie. He seems like a great guy. See, good cuddler, I bet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, now it's, it's getting awkward. Well, Bob Orvis, thank you so much for coming in. Dave, I do truly love you. And Bob, I love you too. I appreciate this. In a different type of love. In a different type of love. We don't cuddle. We don't cuddle. I'd like to cuddle. Okay. Okay. Maybe later. Thanks, Bob, for coming in. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. The Comedy Sports Podcast is produced and engineered by Kyle Hannigan. Our announcer is PJ Rockwell. Feel free to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Comments and inquiries can be sent to the Comedy Sports Podcast at gmail.com. Created and hosted by me, Christine Rolo Capriolo. Thanks for listening. The Comedy Sports Podcast is an independent production made by CSC players. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast host and any guests are their own and do not represent the views and opinions of any CSE location or CSE worldwide. Vocabulary used by the host and guests is not necessarily representative of the CSE brand.